Welcome, B2B startups, changeups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. This is Eric Schwartzman. I have today a uh, longtime uh, friend, Ron Plouffe. Uh, thanks for joining us. Ron, tell us about yourself. Eric, how are you? Uh, about myself, I've, uh, I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. I've been a storyteller for, uh, for a long time, going all the way back to when I was a kid. Uh, I'm one of the very first uh, podcasters, uh, having started a storytelling podcast in 2005, Griddle Cakes Radio. Uh, and so I've been doing storytelling for a while on, on different media. And in 2015, when people started asking, how do you how do you tell stories? I actually came up with a structured way uh, to help uh, people tell business stories by coming out with a product called the StoryHow Pitch Deck, which is a deck of cards. And uh, I write at StoryHow.com. And so if people are interested in just learning how to maybe uh, strengthen their storytelling muscles, that's where you can go to find out what I do. And you've got a ton of B2B experience. I mean, you're, you're a yes. B2B guy. You've got a ton of tech experience. So let's talk for a second about how the B2B landscape from a, from, from a lead gen standpoint has changed and, and kind of how have stories changed. I mean, where are we now with B2B lead gen and where are we headed? I'm trying to figure out the best way to start that, right? Because we have seen a lot of change. Like you, you and I have been, uh, especially in social media for a while, right? And if, if you think about uh, how, lead, how lead gen is, has changed, is we, we now have all of these different channels available to us. So um, you know, before, it used to be the old Rolodex and, uh, and going out and, and doing some advertising, and hopefully you can get people to sign up for lists and things like that. Uh, we then grew to have all these different channels. Uh, and then uh, just as we're getting used to those channels, the social media networks actually changed how they're used and started to throttle them down. So um, lead gen has, has, constantly, has constantly changed. I think one of the things that actually has kept the same would be word of mouth. Word of mouth is something that I think really hasn't changed that much. Let's, let's um, talk for a minute about, uh, you know, sort of big ideas and statements that are memorable and repeatable. Do you have a formula for coming up with things that are more likely to persuade and, and grab hold of, you know, prospects at different stages of the funnel in, in B2B markets? Yeah, well, and really for any market, right? If you're trying to communicate an idea, and one application could be uh, to, to draw out leads, one, one could be to convey an idea during a sales meeting, or to, you're standing in front of a group of people. Uh, yeah, one of, the, one of my areas of study is I actually study um, proverbs, uh, such as, uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Uh, and what's really interesting about Proverbs is that they are the ultimate long story short, that a lot of the things that I teach in storytelling actually can boil down to these little tiny pithy uh, statements. And so, yeah, so I actually uh, studied uh, over 1,500 Proverbs. I have found that there are rules for reasons why something like, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, which was, uh, goes back to the 1700s, uh, is just kind of rolls off people's tongue. 
And so rather than thinking about, oh my gosh, you have to hit someone with a message seven times for them to remember it, I bet you don't even remember where, where you heard, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And so um, the, there, are app, there are areas where companies have, have used this, the, the prof, the, have used proverbs or things that are very proverbish. If you think of a, of a diamond is forever, right, from De Beers, if you think of um, how about um, uh, nobody ever get fired for buying IBM, right? These are very proverbish. They follow very specific rules, and they sit in the back of people's heads, and they come out at the exact right time. All right, let's try this for a second, because I have uh, a big idea here, and okay. I'd love to get a story or a metaphor that backs it up. Okay, so here's my big idea. Uh, in a limited market, Building relationships early and often when customers are in a divergent mindset happens best when there's no purchasing decision being made. So in a limited market, right, yep. meaning not a consumer market, but a B2B market where there's a limited number of, of, of prospective customers, building relationships with prospects early and often before customers are in a buyer mindset, it actually happens best before there's budget. Because once there's budget, there's bias, there's penchant, there's existing providers vying for, your, for uh, their attention. So it couldn't even be too late. By the time they're, they have budget, could going after them even be too late? So is the, can, can you think of a, of a proverb that backs that one up? So one of the things that I, um, that I do teach people is trying to figure out, let's now take that, that big idea and see if we can uh, break it down and make it proverbish. So essentially, uh, there are three types of proverbs, all right? It's, uh, you're either, um, it's descriptive, it's prescriptive, or it's predictive, okay? And it, it sounds like this is probably, it could be descriptive or predictive. Something is something. So you said um, purchasing decisions are. So what I wrote down is, is I took all of those things and I tried to start out with, uh, with something that's proverbish. Then maybe we could start to uh, customize a little bit. Essentially, purchasing decisions are best before budgets is what I wrote down. Okay? So uh, that essentially you're, you're describing that these decisions are, are best or they're better or they're or their best something. Maybe we're missing a word. But what we're doing is we've broken it down into something that's very, very um, similar. What I love is that you've used the word best. That's uh, using a superlative type language is great for Proverbs. Um, I like the fact that you have something that's alliterative before budgets, right? So all of those things are memorable, right? So there's best as opposed to maybe you could flip this around, maybe figure out the way to talk about the worst is after budgets, all different ways that you can play with these ideas by following the rules of Proverbs. All right, you want to try another one? Let's do it. Why not? All right, let's do it. Okay, um, so here's another one. Information overload is filter failure. When listening to B2B markets, the conversations you get out are only as good as the keywords you put in. You just, you just used two proverbs. You, you, they're already proverbish, right? You said info motion is filter failure, right? 
So that's a de- it's a definition it's a definition, right? So it's a definition proverb, and it's already there. So infra is filter failure. You might want to figure out a way to um, uh, to maybe put that into a little bit of context, but it's already there. And the second one you said was I didn't write it down, but you already said it. Well, it, it was already a, a proverb. The second one. The uh, the conversations you get out are only as good as the keywords you put in. Absolutely, yes. Um, that is exactly a proverb. And what it, it has all kinds of different ways of um, uh, you, you're, you're using opposites, you know, uh, out and in, right? You're using great ways of, of playing with words, um, and it is um, predictive. It's a predictive proverb. You're, you're predicting something will happen. If I wanted to find an existing proverb that was out there, that everyone knew that was already a meme that reinforced or, or, or um, uh, solidified this thinking on a much simpler level. Is there a way to do that? Like, how do, you, how do you go into the world of Proverbs and find the existing proverb that already says what you're trying to say? There, Proverbs that are popular in, in, in various cultures are more about producing human truths, all right, wisdom, passing wisdom from one person to another. And so what I try to do is saying, well, if, if, if I pass wisdom, is there a way that we can then find rules so that we can do exactly what you and I were doing? We're trying to figure out a way to put together a, um, a proverb of your wisdom. Now, what is interesting is sometimes if you did a search on, on Google for Proverbs, you will get a list of Proverbs. You might find something that fits, that it specifically fits what you're trying to say. Or what you might try to do is use a derivative, all right? And to me, a derivative is what if you took a very famous proverb and then switched it around to be able to convey what you're trying to say? I have a great example of that. Uh, my, my good friend, Park Howell, who is uh, someone who else is in the storytelling industry, um, he has this, I, I, it's definitely a derivative, is that he says, a spoonful of story helps the data go down. So if you think about it, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. He turned it around so that people, they understand that old one. What's also interesting is how he plays with, if you think about it now, if you look at the metaphor, uh, story is like sugar, um, that data is like medicine and bitter and things like that. So sometimes you can just take an existing one and then twist it around a little bit to help you out. Interesting. Love that. So let's, let's talk now. Let's make this practical from a sales and marketing standpoint for B2Bs. Can you develop stories that are likely to attract qualified prospects to a funnel? Yeah. Um, I think the to me, the, the thing you need to think about is, is forget about the funnel, right? At, at first, you've got you to figure out the story. You have to figure out the story first. What is the purpose of your story? Uh, that one could be to draw someone into a funnel, one could be, but it depends on where they are in the funnel. So you need to find the story first, tell the story, and then um, if you have a, uh, a fundamental story, there may be a piece of that story that makes more sense to tell at a different part of the funnel. And do you have a model for that? No, I mean, 
the the model that I have is uh, is just defining what a story is. A story is the result of people pursuing what they want. And so what that means, the story has three parts. There are roles, there are events, and then there, there are the influences. If you can understand that, who uh, think about the roles, all right? What are the roles in the, the business story that you're trying to tell? All right, there's you, there's your customer. There could be vendors. There could be competitors. There are roles. Then you have the events that happen, right? Maybe it's a trade show. Maybe it's a newsletter. Maybe, and then there are the influences. What are the influences? What do each of those want? Your competitor wants to beat you. Your customer wants to solve their problem. You want to sell a product or service. Once you start identifying all these different pieces, then you can start to put them together into a story. So, you know, in my book, Social Marketing of the Business Customer, we, uh, we gave a case study on a company that sold solder paste. And, uh, you know, solder paste is obviously not something a lot of people buy, but those who do back up the truck, which is what makes B2B so different, one, two, three, four, five, customers can radically reshape a company's bottom line. So, yep. you know, with that in mind, when you're thinking about a, a finite market, a, finite, a, B2B, a B2B that sells to a, a market of customers that really is not growing, and they, they pretty much know who they should be selling to, is there a way to adapt storytelling to target account marketing? Well, one of the nice things about um, B2B, especially in that, uh, uh, that specific of a marketplace, lead gen is less important because there are probably only a few people that sell this by the truckload. Right? Uh, so lead gen is a little less um, uh, important. And so then the question is, okay, well then – you probably know your customers, your customers know you, and so now it's about trying to figure out what is important to them. What is important? Like, um, like why does, does someone buy your solder paste before, um, uh, from you as opposed to uh, anybody else? What is it? Is it price? Is it delivery terms? Is like what makes it? Uh, you know, are you just a nice guy? <laughs> I don't know. But Understanding these things uh, can help you write maybe a success story. And the whole idea of the story is can your, your customer or your, prescript, your uh, prospective customer see themselves in the story? Do they, see the, do they have the same needs and wants as the, as the people in the story? Because then now you have something that resonates specifically with them. You know, uh, it's, it's an interesting thought because – I have long argued that in B2B sales and marketing, buyers make purchasing decisions based on facts rather than emotions, based on group consensus. But, you know, Brian Solis has, has always disagreed with me, and I may be actually coming around to his way of thinking. Uh, so, you know, the question is, no, are, I... rational, are rational stories like case studies with quantitative evidence enough to convert a marketing qualified lead to a sales qualified lead? Or are irrational stories and experiences and emotions more important? So um, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, not only do I agree with Brian, um, he's absolutely right, but um, I'll actually go before Brian, that uh, Aristotle said that if you want to persuade someone, and to me, sale is the ultimate persuasion. You're persuading someone to do a very unnatural act and give you money <laughs> from their own pocket. Um, that uh, he said, in order to persuade, you need three things. You need logos, pathos, 
an ethos. So logos, you need the logic, you need the facts, just like you're talking about. Ethos, you need the, the credibility, right? The ethics, you, you need ethos, but you need pathos. You need the emotion. And the way I look at this is that business is a highly emotional decision. Think about the whole, um, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. We talked about that. That is a purely emotional plea. Because if people are going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on something, or, or any amount, they're taking a risk. If it goes bad, they lose their job, right? So there are lots of emotions that are going on. Then the other thing is if you actually look at neurology and brain science, what happens is that when we are faced with something, something especially um, that we've maybe never seen before, the first thing that does is kick in is called instinct. It, it's something and there's nothing you can do about it. It starts in the deepest parts of our brain, and it's usually an alert signal. The next thing is it hits the neocortex, the newest part of our brain, which is the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere is purely um, uh, emotional, and it is an order of magnitude faster than the logical side. And so what happens is the right side of your brain starts throwing up all these hypotheses. hypotheses. It could be this and this and this and this and this. Your logical brain takes a little bit of time to focus and put all these facts together and weigh the risks, the benefits, and things like that. So people buy on emotion and justify with logic. It's the way we work. Well, there you go. I've, I've had some learning myself here. I think I've come around. Thanks for helping Good. me get over, over the hump there. <laughs> Talk to us about, about how you find yeah, – how do you match – the message to the media. How do you how do you find the right vehicle for delivering stories to a market? Like when do you blog? When do you white paper? When do you podcast? When do you news? When do you go with feature oriented content? Print versus digital, mainstream versus niche. Is there any sort of model or rationale that you can use to sort of plot a plan of attack based on an objective? The way I look at it is that, you know, you know, 30 years ago, we only had, we had very few vehicles by which to deliver messages. Now we have like an infinite amount of vehicles. And each one has their own thing. You know, Twitter is about real-time short messages. Um, that LinkedIn is about um, business relationships. Uh, of course, we've got broadcasts. Uh, we have um, our digital media podcast, blogging, things like that. To me, we te uh, I'm all about, let's find the story, all right? How, let's find a story that a customer can find themselves in and they can relate with. Now the question on what is the best vehicle by which to deliver that story? If it's really visual, use video, right? If it's just something that we, you think you can do in text, do it in text. And so um, you have to match specifically what are you trying to do and then what medium does it make sense to achieve that goal? We have so many different choices nowadays, Eric. So just so many different choices. Um, it, I, you really have to stop and think about it. Before, we didn't have to worry about the medium. We just had to worry about the message. And now we have to worry about uh, both of them. Then the other thing is I like to see, like I can tell you about my process, right? What I like to do is I like to use my blog as my um, – uh, it's my exercise, right? I put pressure on myself to come up with a blog post every week or two. 
And so I'm constantly looking for new ideas. And I use my blog to try out new ideas. And my blog posts are only 400 to 600 words long. Every now and then I'll stumble upon something. In 2016, uh, I, wrote, uh, this, uh, I wrote something called When to Make a Point, Offer a Proverb, or Tell a Parable. And from that, turned into a book right? that I discovered something and it, it resonated with people and they wanted to learn more. So, um, so I have a blog post, which is short, which then can maybe, if people are interested in, maybe you take three or four of these blog posts, it becomes a white paper. Who knows? Maybe a couple white papers become an ebook. Maybe something becomes a book. Uh, maybe you want to turn it into a documentary. I mean, there are all different ways. But what I find is rather than just sitting down saying, oh, I'm going to do a video today, I, um, I like to have a process. And the process is about practicing, finding the ideas that resonate with people, and then targeting the specific place that it needs to go. So you see, you know, some organizations, when they're telling stories um, as a way of attracting <clears throat> prospective customers, they'll tell stories about themselves. They'll tell stories about the benefits and the features of their product. They'll tell stories about, um, you know, uh, the, uh, how, how big they are, how much business they're doing, who their customers are. And then you see other companies that tell more stories about the problems that they solve. <clears throat> they talk more about, you know, the pain that customers are feeling. They talk about, you know, the, the types of problems people would be willing to acknowledge. They talk sometimes even about the types of problems people don't want to talk about. Um, do you have any sort of rules of thumb or thoughts around uh, which is better, when to do which one, are both good? Yeah, no, there's only one that's good. <laughs> um, the best storytellers, the best communicators have empathy for their audiences. And everything's devoted to the audience. It's nothing to do with me. Think about uh, you're at a dinner party, and there's the guy that's talking about me, 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 everything about me. You want to leave them. Matter of fact, as you're talking about you know, all this me, me, I just wanted to use a snoring sound, right? I'm, I'm falling asleep here. I really don't care about you. I care about what you can do for me. And so that's what people have to focus on. You need to have empathy for audience. It, it, all right, so let's say being the biggest in an industry is a truth. I'm the biggest in the industry. Rather than saying I'm the biggest in the industry, what you need to do is figure out a way on why that's important to the end customer. Because then, who knows, maybe you, because you're the biggest, you have clout. And you might be able to purchase things at larger volumes, which give them uh, a better price, prices and things like that. So if there are the things that, yes, you are good at and you've done a really good job of building a business and, and, and you are who you are and you have your strengths, but um, until you can make those strengths applicable to your customer, they mean nothing. So then companies that talk a lot about you know, how big they are and the size of their this and no one cares. how much resources they have. You don't think no that's an effective way? No uh, one cares. You think stories about solving problems or solving problems that the customer is faced with and positioning pretty much all your communications around that is stronger. Exactly. Um, the, the biggest mistake that I think um, companies make, especially when they, they're trying to tell stories and they, it's all about them, is they make themselves the hero of the story. Your customer is always going to be the hero of the story. Uh, I, I like to say that um, in, uh, if you tell the story of King Arthur, um, that King Arthur is the hero. Excalibur 
is a minor character. But King Arthur can't rule Camelot without Excalibur. Your, co your company produces Excalibur. You are a minor character in their story. And a lot of executives don't hear about that. We're not a minor anything, but you are. But if you think of the importance, if you are producing um, Excalibur, the hero can't do what they need to do without your help. The hero of the story is the customer, not you. Got it. So with that in mind, how would you create a story that helps the prospect self-qualify? If a customer can see themselves in the story, they are self-qualifying just by that act. If they understand like, oh, yeah, I've had that problem. I've been there before. Wow, I never thought about solving it that way. They are self-qualifying. They're coming to you and saying, look, you did this for, 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 for this um, uh, person over here, and if you helped her, I think you can help me. Let's talk for a minute uh, about earned versus owned. Earned yeah. media being, um, you know, the media that you uh, get other people to use to talk about you. Um, I guess the, the best uh, analogy would be public relations. You get media yeah. coverage about your company. Yeah. That would be considered earned. And then owned would be your own media, you know, your blog or your website or your podcast. Any thoughts on what goes where, which stories do best in earned and which ones do best in owned? Yeah, um, and that's an area where I think uh, I was a little, when we started out this conversation, you're talking about leads, and, uh, and I, was, I was really having a hard time uh, pinning it down. This is where I was getting to, is that um, they're both important. But things have changed. Uh, if you think about like on the owned media and the whole idea of organic growth and organic, um, uh, we had all of these different uh, social media sites that we could use to, uh, to take our owned media and get exposure. But the business model has always been when you start a social network, um, we're going to let you do that until we get successful enough, until we start to get investors, and now we're going to throttle you. Now we're going to make you buy it, right? And it, it, this is the model. And I think we, we've seen it now a dozen times. This is the way, the, the way to go. So um, if you can find a brand new social network that's growing, I would use that to try to grow organically as, as quickly as I could until they decide to throttle it. Um, and then, yes, there are the traditionals. I am a big um, – I'm a big – believer in, um, uh, in PR. I do believe it's, uh, that I'm a big believer in PR. Um, what I do think that the old, the old way of PR is, you know, I kind of just blasting out press releases is probably not the best way. Uh, I think one of the, the better ways is to, again, have empathy for your audience, have empathy for, say, the reporters that you want to pick up this story, find out about them, Pitch them something very specific that they've covered before and they're willing to cover for you. And then on the owned media, if you have some uh, blog posts or some uh, um, white papers and things like that, use that as backup. So that eventually if you can get um, that, that, uh, that earned media out there to come back to your owned, now you're using both together. You have to use it uh, in a, a concerted way. What about how do you overcome – the um, the uh, uh, um, gosh, 
if, if, if you're concerned that people aren't going to give your owned media a fair shake because, you know, it is owned media, how do you overcome being seen as a house organ? I mean, are you good at what you do or not, right? Um, if you, you're credible or you're not. We go back to the Aristotle, you know, uh, that, you know that you need logos, pathos, uh, and, and ethos. Ethos, right? If, if, you, if you aren't credible in what you do, you're right, you're toast. However, if you um, are, are good in a very specific industry and if people visit your own sites and they see that you know what you're talking about and that you have helped other people, that's how you, that's how you get it. But you, you need, you need the, uh, the credibility to begin with. So let's, let's talk about credibility. Um, you know, there are a number of contentious markets out there where people align on different sides of the market based on their existing beliefs. In these environments that are highly contentious, highly contested, what types of stories and or storytellers are best at converting non-believers? So um, when I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm understanding your, uh, your, your question correctly. Um, uh, unbelievers sounds like a very religious argument. So uh, if you, no, if you're talking about no, no, no. religion, not religious at all, not religious at all. And I'll give you an example, climate change. Ah. Climate change has become a political issue. Yeah. It's actually a science issue, but it's become yeah. highly politicized and yeah. people align on different sides of the issue based on their political yeah. beliefs. So if you were communicating in that environment, how would you try to cross the chasm and engage the other side? Yeah. Um, one of the problems with these hot button issues, you, you have to actually have two people willing to listen to one another. <laughs> so let's assume that you can get that. All right. I, I don't know if you can get that right. That right now it's a polarized issue. Um, that it comes down to ethos, logos, and pathos, right? So on one hand, uh, think about uh, someone who is coming at it from one perspective and they're only coming at it from the facts. But they're going after somebody who this is a very emotional um, issue, right? But, you know, sometimes it's not equal parts of facts and emotion. Some people are more emotional. Some people are more facts. Some people will turn down facts, right? Um, so what you need to do is your argument has to take into account the audience and where they're coming from and, and what you're trying to do. So, like I said, first of all, a lot of, I, I find that a lot of people in terms of climate change are talking at one another and they're not listening to one another. You know, if someone questions, just questions, uh, like a piece of research and they're considered, um, well, you're a climate denier, that may not be the truth. Right. As a scientist, and, and I've been a, a, a scientist is supposed to uh, put together information and also tell you why it may not be true. That, that's what a, a good scientist will do, because they want other scientists to, to check and make sure they got things right, because the whole thing is about getting things right. Um, if you uh, if you say, OK, great, um, here is some uh, some information. And then you say, but this part I'm not too sure about. 
There's nothing wrong with that. But there could be one side that says, oh, you are, uh, you're a denier. Then you take it the other way where someone might say, well, um, well uh, I'm looking at it from an emotional standpoint. My God, if we don't solve this now, you know, we're going to destroy the world. And what I find is that um, it's really hard to, uh, when, when you have uh, someone that comes at it from that perspective, it's really hard to convince somebody based on apocalyptic type things. Like if, if, if it's all apocalyptic, then it's really easy for someone to say, well, there's nothing I can do, and they can just throw their hands up. And so you have to look at it from both sides. And if we can get people from both sides to look at it, um, we can do it. it. Here's another example. How about the anti-vaxxers, right? If you think about the whole idea of anti-vaxxers, um, was, was, have been reading some really interesting articles on why it hasn't, wh- how did the anti-vaxxer movement happen? Well, in the past, they were all about um, eliminating disease. And that if, if your child gets a disease, that's really bad, and we have to figure out a way to do it. Now, when, after we have now eliminated the disease, essentially solved, we'll put that in quotes, now what happens is people, they start looking at it, and so they start looking at the downside of the, um, the injection. And so they're looking at the vaccination. They're not thinking, we've already... We've already um, solved the fact that the vaccination works. Are there downsides? Yeah. But the risk starts to, to flip a little bit, where people start saying, oh, is there a risk of the vaccine? Really not thinking about the risk uh, that, that we used to have with, say, measles. It depends on which side you're coming at. So um, when, when um, it all becomes just fact, people who are emotional-based are not going to listen and when it's um, all based on emotion, the people who are interested in facts aren't going to listen. You need both. And, and I think that um, all of these hot-button issues are the fact that um, each is talking a different language, and it's just driving them further apart. And I don't know if that answers it's, the question, but, yeah. It's a very interesting question. You know, it's something that I thought a lot about when I was working for U.S. Department of State as a special advisor on climate communications. And I ran into this guy, Dan Cahan, who teaches science communications for Yale, and who came up with this concept called cultural cognition, which is really interesting. And basically, I mean, what he says is when it comes to communicating science that impacts policy, the messenger is more important than the message. So if you, if you think about it, right, we, we should expect people to form assessments of risk that reflect their membership in specific affinity groups, right? The ones that we ascribe to, that have the same worldviews as we do, who, who, who believe that we should vote the same way on the, on the same wedge issues in, a, in an election. So when it comes to risk assessment on complex issues where we don't have the time or capacity to consider and appreciate all the details, right, on those complex issues, we just trust whoever shares our worldviews to provide context and analysis. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you think about that for a second in, in the context of climate change, you know, my aha moment there was, well, Jesus, if we want to communicate, if, if we want to communicate across the aisle 
you know, say from, I don't know, liberal to conservative on climate change because it's become a, such a politicized issue, you know, wh- rather than having the folks on the left telling the story to the folks on the right, you know, what if we went to the folks on the right who are seeing the problems of climate change? And so we actually figured out who that was. With climate change, it, it's um, the military who see our dependence on fossil fuel as um, uh, a, a threat to national security because, mm-hmm. you know, we get in these theaters of combat, and if we don't have access to, to oil, you know, we can't be effective. Um, landowners, farmers who are seeing, you know, the, their, their land become unusable, unable to grow crop on it. Uh, hunters, you know, gun rights activists, hunters who are seeing um, uh, game stock deplete, fishermen, very often conservative, uh, you know, seeing fish stocks deplete, and um, employers who are seeing the impact of, uh, you know, a, a warmer environment on work, workplace productivity. You know, and then there's a, there was actually a, there's a whole initiative around business owners being affected by it called Risky Business, uh, whereby they sort of identified those industries that are most likely uh, to, to lose from a warmer climate, and they were insurance, first responders, <clears throat> and several others. So, so my takeaway from that was, you know, when it comes to these contentious issues like this, the messenger is much more important than the message. Yeah, the messenger would be the ethos part of what Aristotle is saying, right? Um, and that also gets a, a little tricky. Uh, backing up a little bit, a story is the result of people pursuing what they want, want. You just talked about there are all these different roles, right? You just gave me a whole list of people roles, right? And then the event. So, say the, the event is uh, is climate change. Is you know the the, the climate is warming and uh, and we're seeing ice caps melt and things like that. And then you have the influences. Everybody has their own the thing that's helping them. I mean, uh, if I'm a farmer, uh, I need to farm to 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 keep my land right. Um, if I'm in the military, we need to protect the country. Uh, and so we all have these influences. And what we need to do is we need to think about. How do we? Uh, this is a very complex issue. This isn't going to be solved before the um, uh, the next commercial break. We have to think about it. We have to be talking at one another. Then there's also some research I've been doing is interesting. We said that it comes down to the person speaking, right? It comes down to uh, you know that person. What is very common nowadays, because this is so political, is the ad hominem attack, right? And so what um, the research shows is that let's say that you have a person who's very credible and someone makes an ad hominem attack about them, about them as a person, about their credibility, that somehow psychological, that has more effect on totally demolishing a person's argument in our own minds than fact uh, and, and or emotion. There's just something about the ad hominem attack that they're finding is very, very... so. What happens is, let's say that I'm, uh, I, I decide I'm going to come out and I'm, I'm going to have an opinion on, uh, on climate change, and then someone disagrees with that. All they have to do is attack my character, attack my motives, and it can totally water down what people will think, will think about my ideas. And that's another dangerous area. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about um, this as it applies to B2B is, you know, science and, uh, and climate change is a complex issue, as are many B2B purchases. They are complex sales. So is there any sort of takeaway 
that B2Bs can get from this contentious environment, particularly, I guess, in an environment like CRM or, you know, any of these ERP provider environments where there's, you know, a, a, a limited number of, you know, major organizations competing for the same dollars. Is there any sort of takeaway that they can get from a storytelling standpoint about how best to structure their stories to win friends and influence people? A lot of these um, really complex sales you're talking about usually have dedicated sales staff, um, and dedicated sales staff are very good at looking at roles, events, and influences. And so they can look and they can say, look, we have, the, we have the purchasing department that we need to take care of. We have the ultimate end user. We have management. Uh, understanding their roles, their events, and their influences in this great game of business um, that really I think that's what uh, that a sales force does. It's also a great – and once you understand those things, uh, sales, once a purchase order happens, especially one of these big complex sales, that is an ultimate mining place for marketers to go to find stories to tell because they're real, they're very complex, and that what they might be able to find is, well, I have a customer who has, um, you know, they're worried about, say, budgeting or they're worried about discounts or something like that, that there may be something that um, there was uh, uh, some sort of concession, some sort of um, uh, idea, some sort of um, we're going to throw this product in to sweeten the deal. There might be something like that that can actually turn into a marketing story. Well, that's a very interesting segue. So I'd like to ask you the, uh, my final question, and it has to do with churn. Um, you know, obviously, not just SaaS, but so many companies are looking now at these subscription revenue models where they're trying to turn sales into recurring revenue so that they have some revenue predictability over time. And, of course, in the world of SaaS, you know, we're always looking to fight churn, and we fight churn by uh, making sure that customers are successful and making sure that customers utilize the product. So uh, do you have any um, tips for us around creating stories that would contribute to customer success or increase utilization after conversion? Yeah, I think if you're looking at a subscription model um, that you need to come up with stories that earn it every day. It, it, you have to constantly earn that subscription. One of the things that drives me crazy is I don't mind a subscription model, but I find it um, arrogant when you say, okay, well, uh, um, you can subscribe for a year, and then at the end, um, if you don't tell us anything, we're going to auto-renew. And, and I find that arrogant uh, because what it's saying is that you're going to put the onus on me to turn off the subscription. And so I want you to earn it. I, I want you to say that, you know what, we're not going to auto-renew, but we're going to earn it, right? We're going to constantly show you the value. And so that's my personal belief um, in, in subscriptions, that uh, uh, you, you don't want people just to forget it because if, if, if I forget about it, I'm going to get charged, but it also means that you're probably going to forget about me. And so I think if you want a subscription model, we have to put the onus on you to earn it every day. And, you know, the modes, the conventional modes for uh, customer success and utilization are user conferences, webinars, white papers, that type of content. Do you think that's yeah. the way to go? Is, are they missing something? Should we do something else? Any ideas yeah. around how to infuse those types of channels with story? 
don't um, and and don't uh, forget what I think is one of the most powerful is say like the email newsletter, right? Is is a great touch point, which is with you know so that um, if uh, if you have a subscription service and then you're constantly providing value, maybe there are some stories you can talk about how people are using the subscription in maybe uh, in different ways. And then you, as, the, as, um, as, as a subscriber, can say, wow, I never thought about using the service that way, and I'm going to see if I can do it in my business. See, at that point, you have a constant touch point, just in a simple email newsletter that I've opted into, and I can opt out at any point. I love putting the power into the, uh, the consumer's hand. But if I'm constantly providing them with, um, with ways that they can better use my service, I'm earning it every day. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Tell us where people can find you. Where can we get the pitch story deck? Um, how do we follow up with you? Yeah, so really, if you go to storyhow.com, uh, that's where you can find me. You can sign up for my Dragon Slayer Digest newsletter. Uh, we just talked about newsletters because I, I do believe in them. Uh, my Story How pitch deck is on Amazon, so it's a, it's a collection. If, if you have uh, uh, an idea that you want to turn into a business story, essentially it's 60 cards that will help you do that. Uh, again, storyhow.com is the best place to start. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.